welcome. Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is a podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today we're at episode number 93. In this episode, I join Kendall Lott, host of the PM Point of View podcast, which originates from the Washington, D.C. chapter of the Project Management Institute. Kendall invited me to come on his podcast to explain the new management model found in my 2017 book, Become Truly Great, Serve the Common Good Through Management by Positive Organizational Effectiveness. This episode is based on a recording that I made and later edited. Kendall's version of the interview will come out later this year as part of the PM Point of View podcast. The interview is a wide-ranging discussion on a number of topics that were addressed in the book from capitalism to the practice of management. I hope you enjoy it. Many thanks to Kendall Lott for inviting me to be on his podcast. So settle back and enjoy this episode. Here I am with Dr. Charles Chandler. And uh, it's a pleasure to meet you and it's actually exciting to meet you. Um, Dr. Chandler's work was one of the major things that I learned and got to ponder while I was hiking the Appalachian Trail last year for five months. So when you start thinking about organizational effectiveness for 2,000 miles, you really start to be swimming in it. It takes over your life and you end up listening to all of his podcasts. He has 90. There'll be more news on that later. And uh, one book headed to two books. There'll be more news on that later as well. So uh, good morning and welcome here in Vienna, Virginia. Hey, Kendall, it's great to be with you, and uh, I'm, I'm honored that you took the time on the Appalachian Trail to uh, <laughs> take a look at what I was doing. So tell us just real quick some background. So who are you, what did you train in, and what do you do in, in this space? Well, I trained as an engineer, and I'm sort of an unlikely messenger for this book. It's called Become Truly Great, because uh, all of my uh, degrees are from the School of Engineering, but uh, when I was doing my PhD, it was sort of an inter- interdisciplinary uh, exercise, and I also trained in economics and geology and environmental sciences. Uh, so I'm sort of an interdisciplinary guy, and I like to work between the disciplines where the white space is, because I think that's where the interesting things happen. I'm intrigued by the notion that what I was learning about in organizational uh, effectiveness and the way you were approaching it, and even as you discuss other models of it and its application and the big picture questions, which we're going to get into, I mean, we're, we're, we're questioning capitalism in some of this. It comes from this very different space of environmental and geology, energy, uh, engineering. But I think it's about systems thinking. I think it's about thinking of those kinds of interactions of large processes uh, and, and how they use resources. And so I, it strikes me as interesting that your training has led to this thinking because I think your training was in the, the analytical as much as it was around the topics that you, the industries you specifically highlighted there. Certainly my training in engineering is, is analytical, uh, but my experience also mm-hmm. has been in a lot of different areas in state government, for one, and in international development, where I spent much of my career. So here we go. Organizational effectiveness. Uh, interesting topic. Lots of people have talked and written about it. And in fact, that's how you open your book. And so your book uh, your book title is... The, the name of the book is Become Truly Great, Serve the Common Good Through Management by Positive Organizational Effectiveness. So big question here. What caused you to care to even approach the question of organizational effectiveness? What triggered this interest, this need? Well, I had a long-term um, career in international development and working with some very large international organizations. And there, it's the project space. Mm. Um, and so I worked with hundreds of projects, um, both on the design side, the implementation side, and, and finally the evaluation side. And there's always debates in development about what is an effective, what is effective development and uh, particularly what are effective projects. And... The problem that bothered me was that uh, people set objectives and then they're graded against those objectives. And objective setting is uh, not uh, an over-the-counter sort of remedy. It's, it's prescription strength medicine, and it has to be done according to a certain protocol. And most organizations don't really uh, take the time and the, the care needed to set the objectives correctly. Uh, so we'll get into the various problems you get into with objectives maybe uh, a little bit later, but the basic problem is on the objective setting side and then being able to uh, evaluate and implement against those. Because you can game the system. You can set an easy objective, right. 
um, and then you can achieve it, right? Right. But it may be totally meaningless in one way and is not really addressing the, the needs of the environment. Well, a subset of the problem that I've seen there, and, and tell me if this is what you're observing, is even when people set objectives, which I think you're calling into question, is, val- is, is you're questioning the validity of doing that anyway, they often would measure inputs versus outputs, which I think you're also going to challenge the outputs on this as well. But I remember struggling so hard, and even now as a corporate owner and working with clients, that we often find it easier to measure inputs than even outputs. Um, and I'm Upon my reading with your book, it sounds like even having object, objectives around outputs is bad, possibly. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's so all about efficiency because problem. converting inputs to outputs is all about efficiency. We love efficiency, don't we? And it's easy to measure. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's helpful then, right? No. Um, well, maybe not. <laughs> okay. So lay it out for us. You don't like objective setting uh, as a one-size-fits-all anyway. Uh, you're saying that that's not an appropriate way to go and, and work with that. Well, see, the problem is Even that converting inputs to activities to outputs is all within the control of the organization. So it's all self-referencing. Uh, but the environment, you know, the organization lives in an environment. There we go. And to survive and thrive, the organization must exchange benefits with its environment. That means it has to have outcomes in the environment. And if nobody wants what the organization is delivering in terms of outputs, then uh, you're dead in the water. You don't have effectiveness if you're not delivering outcomes. How is this not measured then in a traditional profit model? So I produce a good or service, and the, which is measured in a benefit in the form of some form of capital, right? Which um, has is, is it's useful because it's a proxy for, for utility, right? And it's handed back to me. And there's the fair exchange at that point. And we can measure if I'm doing well or not by how much of that profit I pull, how much of that revenue, how much of that capital I pull back. And then that's why efficiency plays in because the only thing now I can control is the cost against that. Why is that a problem? Why is that not a good indicator of my interaction with my external environment? Um, You're asking about the profit motive and whether that should be the objective. Um, I'm asking about it as a measurement system. Yeah. Well, in in many organizations, it is a measurement system, but it leads to what I call efficiencyism. Okay. And the reason is because it's a very narrow objective. Profit's a manufactured number in any case because it's it's, um, your top line minus some expenses and stuff, and and that gives you a a profit. But... um, you can decide every quarter whether you want to have a profit or not and do certain things to manufacture that number. Oh, through the accounting. We, Absolutely. When I was learning accounting in graduate school, they called it accounting magic. They said yeah. it, it's, a, it's, a, it's math, it's not really a science, and it's actually an art, which makes it magic. <laughs> and the problem is, <laughs> Things you know, look better than they need to sometimes or worse than they need to sometimes. That's right. But you can't um, look at profit in the field. In other words, if you, uh-huh. if you want to decide whether you're effective or not, you can't go out and look at profit as a referent for effectiveness. Um, you know, it just doesn't work that way because it's it's like looking in the rearview mirror trying to drive forward. It, it's already happened. It may have happened several months ago or a couple of quarters ago, uh, as far as what you were doing to produce that profit. That seems to open the whole door to the purposes of strategic planning. Then this idea that I will lean into this. So, but to recap here, we're saying that one of the problems is. My argument would be probably that profit's not a bad measure. You're suggesting that it may actually not always be helpful. And I think the international experience, particularly through associations and non-governmental organizations, you see that profit is not really a good measure. But you're also suggesting that it changes people's behavior. And so it's actually not a very good reference. Well, profit is necessary, yeah. as just as surplus is necessary in the nonprofit sector. Yeah. But it's just like, um, you know, we need air to breathe, but we don't breathe, we don't live to breathe. Right. Um, so profit is necessary, but it's not the goal. It's only a, an artifact. It's, it's uh, something we have to have to, to get our revenue and, and to keep going, but it's not what we should be striving for. So we'll get to what we should be striving for, but you highlighted that how we've measured things in the past, like looking at objectives, management by objectives, questions of profit and therefore the profit motive, even to the extent that it tends to look in the rearview mirror, are all uh, negative things that aren't helpful. Uh, You've mentioned before even agency theory on this, this idea that as leaders of organizations, as people who manage resources, a project manager would see this as well, the sense that they are acting on behalf of someone else's need and they've broken down the goals and they are saying, my part 
helps this measure. You've challenged that in your book, I've noticed. Yeah, uh, but let me go back to one thing you brought up, um, which is um, uh, suppose I told you that um, in the next five years, if you continue to use airlines, that uh, there was a one in three chance that you would not be coming home for dinner at some point along the way. Hmm. Um, and so you might reconsider whether you were flying on airlines for yeah, the next five dramatically. years. Right? <laughs> but, but that's the state of management science. The Boston Cons- Consulting Group did a study uh, a few years ago and came out in 2015. They looked at 35,000 public corporations on the stock market, and they looked at uh, whether or not what, what was the likelihood that they would still be around in five years? Mm-hmm. So back in the 50s, it was about 8% that they would be around in five years. Let me make sure I understand that. 92% of companies would disappear within five years? No. It means that 8, 8% would disappear. In oh, five. 8% would disappear. Yeah. Okay. So it was a fairly stable environment back okay. in the 50s. But in 2015, it was 32% would disappear. Wow. So that's one out of three, Yeah. which is it comes back to our airline. So... If, if we were flying on the airlines, that would be very bad uh, science, right? Uh, we wouldn't understand airlines very well. But over time, you know, we've, we've taken um, the technology of airlines and we've built in safeguards and we know what the failure modes are. And so we're able to protect against those. Yeah. But in management, we haven't done any of that, really. Uh, so we're still back in, you know... Guessing? Uh, guessing, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's the concern is we actually don't know how to proactively manage for effectiveness. And in part, as I understood it, was because we don't have a framework for understanding effectiveness, which is what you challenged. And you blended some models to get us there. I, and the one that connected to me was the international development model. How do we get some change in our environment? And then, of course, nobody can ever met. People tend to say, well, I can't really tell if poverty went down or if people are happier, if there's better water supply often. Um So how did you come to modeling this? Yeah. So back in the 60s or before the everything before the 60s, it was basically the goal model, G-O-A-L. And so organizations were effective to the extent that they achieved their goals. Um, But it became obvious uh, fairly quickly that just achieving the goals uh, wasn't necessarily effectiveness. And in fact, all goals are not created equal, right? Mm. Um, And some are more or less trivial. Some are important. To give you an example, um, I was involved in um, uh, the water decade back in um, the 80s, actually. It was yeah. the UN water decade. And so the goal of the decade was actually coverage, to improve the coverage of water and sanitation uh, in uh, all the countries around the world that were participating. And I was actually based in New Delhi, uh, working for the World Health Organization at the time. And my job was to go out to some of the surrounding countries and see what was working and what wasn't working. And because it was coverage as the target, it meant that basically it was all about the numbers. It was about how many, you know, uh, latrines you built and how many hand pumps you built and that sort of thing. And once a hand pump is built, the coverage target is, is met for that particular area. But the problem is that that, you know, if you go out and evaluate the project afterwards, that hand pump may not still be working. And even in some areas, even if it is working, the people may not be using it because they don't like the taste of the water. Mm. You know, you drill a a well with a steel pipe and the water that comes up tastes like iron, basically. Mm. And people that are used to open wells uh, where the water is aerated and the iron precipitates, uh, it's it's very nice tasting water. So there we were measuring outputs. Absolutely. Well, we were measuring actually activities. <laughs> oh, even worse. Yeah, <laughs> even worse. Uh, and and of course, and after, activities. We were counting the number of uh, pumps, and we were counting we were counting pumps. latrines. But when yeah. latrines uh, are are storing hay and people are not using them, uh, that's a problem, right? <laughs> so, or a business opportunity. <laughs> well, it might be. So, WHO came to believe that there was actually a three phase process. Mm. You needed coverage. Uh, you needed functioning. You had to keep working. And you needed utilization, mm. which is the demand side response, basically, right? So this got me thinking about, well, what is effectiveness in, you know, these kinds of projects? And um, uh, we came out with a report at the end that built all this in. It was about achieving success in community water supply and sanitation at the, at the right. time. Yeah. So we, we've said that some of the objective setting is difficult. Managing through a goal system can be different, uh, difficult could be monitoring the wrong things, counting the wrong things. 
I think you're arguing it's not even helpful particularly. It's more about the use I'm hearing, use and uptake. And we've you've talked about uh, when we had different measurement systems, one of which is, for example, the profit system, the way of counting count, uh, counting uh, capital, you said leads to some bad motivations. or And it's also something you can manipulate because it's internal in a certain sense, right? The cost side of it is so, so uh, uh, malleable to a leader. Um, what else did you see as problematic? Because I'm reading your book. I mean, you're questioning some of the core tenets of a number of things. Again, agency theory, uh, you were talking about basically a number of your podcasts, and I recommend people look at them. We're looking at uh, this one about, you've had a couple around capitalism, a challenge to the whole premise of some of the of the capital approach or cap, pure capitalist approach as a model. What is it that you're seeing problematic in that? What, what my main right? point was, if yeah. I can come yeah. up with that in chapter two, and it was about capitalism essentially moving from the invisible hand of market forces yeah. to the visible hand of managerial capitalism. You want us to manage capitalism in one of your podcasts, you say? Well, we have to manage capitalism because it's in our hands now. Because what happened was, even though back in Adam Smith's time, we had free markets mm. and you know there were no barriers to entry and uh, firms were very small, production and distribution were in very, very, very small firms. Owners managed and managers owned in those days. And so free market capitalism was, was quite a good, a good model for the 1700s and Adam Smith. But what happened uh, in the 1800s basically was that we got managerial capitalism. And the way that firms grow is that they take transactions from the market and, and do them internally. So um, as, let's say, the railroads and the telegraph companies grew, they, you know, you no longer had to haggle in the, in the market to carry goods by wagon train. Um, railroads had internal pricing. They had, uh, you know, uh, internal bureaucratic processes. So if you wanted to ride on the railroad, there's a fee for that, right, to go from A to B. And so you don't have to go out in the market and haggle about getting from St. Louis to wherever, uh, you just get on the railroad and you pay your money, and that transaction is internal to the railroad itself. So Ronald Coase wrote a paper in 1937 about, and he got a Nobel Prize Nobel for Prize this, for this um, uh, paper. It's, it's about the theory of the firm, and it's how firms grow. And so as firms grew, uh, we, we no longer had free market capitalism because most of the transactions now are done internally within firms, except where commodities are traded. Right. So if you're out on the commodities market, you know, that's fine. That's free will. Within very, you know, no friction there, really. Right. Uh, but in firms, prices are very slow and sticky. And it's not that they're not tied to the market. They are tied to the market, but there's a lot of pricing freedom that firms gain by bringing, by bringing transactions internally. So by the 1880s, really, um, the economy had moved to one where we no longer had free market capitalism. We had uh, managerial capitalism. We had the visible hand of management doing the job rather than the invisible hand of the market. So that's why... Uh, firms are basically in control of the economy, or, well, all organizations. And so my argument is that we need a better management model to manage capitalism for the common good, because we're all managing capitalism. We're either part of the problem or we're part of the solution. You know, you're, the reality is we are managing capitalism, so you want it Absolutely. positive. <laughs> Absolutely. We want, it to, we, want, we want it to be managed in a, in a better way. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting when you see that. We're not really in a free market situation. Well, we have pricing. We have scheduled pricing. We have structure. Yeah. If you want to sell a book on Amazon, you've got to use Amazon's platform and their pricing model, and they're going to get 30% of the, the book price. So the fact is we do manage capitalism, and because we do that, we have almost a, a, an obligation to manage it at a larger level. Let's talk about value. Value is more than meeting in the objective and checking the box. And it's broader than looking at profit or surplus. Well, I talk about values, not so much value. Mm. Uh, values, in other words, are uh, attractants. Yeah. One thing. There's there's three things that you want to you can do around values. Uh, they're attractive. In other words, 
Uh, they attract people to your organization if you have virtuous values. Uh, they also create a culture within your organization by training and, uh, you know, sort of implementing certain value propositions. Mm-hmm. In other words, attributes to your products. I walked into a McDonald's one day and uh, was handed a brochure mm-hmm. about um, the way that they were recasting their menu and the way that they were sort of selling the attributes. Uh, so to their coffee, they said, well, it's, uh, you know, sourced from the Rainforest Alliance producers uh, with their chicken. You know, they're uh, not using uh, antibiotics that are uh, critical to human health in their chicken. And their fish is wild caught uh, halibut or whatever uh, from um, Alaska. You know, so they were trying to uh, put certain positive attributes onto their, their offerings, their products that would then uh, attract and uh, align with uh, who they thought their customers were, like mm-hmm. the, new, the millennials, for one thing, uh, that have uh, some new values that they want to uh, express and, and play out by you know, use the things that they're eating and using. Uh, so whether or not you pull into the parking lot of McDonald's mm-hmm. may well um, be influenced by what sort of narrative goes through your head as you're thinking about that uh, lunch uh, date that you have, you know. So um, it's all about attracting. It's about um, uh, the culture in your organization, but it's also about uh, avoiding potholes along the road uh, to greatness. So if if we're trying to become truly great, it's hard to argue that we shouldn't uh, clothe ourselves with some values and some virtues before we uh, get on that road. You're describing that's helpful in both the hiring or the, the acquisition of resources, having people come and work for you and, and their work, but also in the product line itself, in the services itself, where it's passed to the customer. Right, because if you're be, if you're trying to become truly great, which is what my book is about, uh, and that's really the only sustainable position that's available is to become truly great, then you want to move in the blue ocean direction. In other words, you want to have things that are unique and that offer value to your customers. You're looking out at the environment, uh, not just to your customers, but your non-customers and other people that can be served. And so you want to um, attract them through certain attributes to your products and services. So we'll get into that right now then. But you just said something that's an interesting assumption in there, which is the we want to be truly great, is your comment, because that's the only way to, to be sustainable. So for organizations that wish to be sustainable over time, they need to follow this path is what your argument is. Why do you say that? Why, why, why are we needing values and virtues to be sustainable? What, what's triggering that? Well, the point is that um, it's the only sustainable position for the long term. Uh, you can be easily pushed out of your niche if you're not truly great. Because uh, why? A newcomer can come in and outdo you. They can be better than you, mm-hmm. um, and you can be pushed out. Uh, but if you're truly great, if the environment recognizes your greatness and you are the go-to guy you know, for whatever that niche is, whatever that product or service is, um, it's very hard to push you out. So we're talking about differentiators here. Uh, although often cost reduction, uh, delivering the same product at a lower price is often, a, a back to the efficiency problem, is often one way to shove somebody out of the market. But you're going to challenge that. Uh, well, cost is uh, a strategy to mm-hmm. some extent. Yeah. Uh, but it all depends on what the customer wants. Um, you know, there's a lot of customers that are not shopping on price. They're they're doing other kinds of things. You know, and millennials are are that are that generation that's coming along. Um, you know, when they're talking about uh, Rainforest Alliance coffee, that's not the cheapest coffee. Yeah. Right. But it has a higher value to them. It has a higher value to them because they want to express their own personalities, their own view of the world in what they buy and what they use. So it's not enough to produce products that people are able to buy. It's a way of seeing a longer-term sustainability because you're tapping into broader utility. It sounds like stakeholder utility, or in this case, customer utility. uh, People are buying for a number of reasons and attributes. And it sounds like you're calling to hit, have people, have organizations 
be more sustainable, more effective by being able to respond to a broader list of attributes. Yeah, I think what's happened, especially with the internet over the last couple yeah. of decades, is that um, the market has become atomized in a sense. Yeah, um, it's been um, highly segmented, and and so a lot of different new um, companies can come up and offer things in new ways, um, and still find uh, throughout the global market uh, enough enough revenue to keep them going. And how does this tie then back to your conversation around the needs to become truly great? Why does this, why does that pattern fit for you there? Because you highlighted a real shift. Well, let me, let me get into another thing, which is driving this in, for, in terms of the, yeah. the model. Um, we talk about causal chains. And how do, you, how do you talk about your products and services, your offerings? How do you determine whether they're effective? whether they're working or not. Mm. So it's all about um, converting inputs to activities to outputs on the supply side and then outcomes and impacts on the demand side. So efficiency is about going from inputs to outputs, as we talked about. Right. But effectiveness is about going from outputs to outcomes. So it's the supply side push of your offering. You know, It has to be met by a demand side pull. And we focus a lot on the push side because we can control that or you we can, think we can see it. <laughs> we can certainly uh, produce the supply side yeah. without any problem. There's always the, the question of whether the demand side agrees that it's worthwhile and, and they're convinced enough to buy it among all the other options out there because there's plenty of options out there. Yeah. You can put out something, but will the, will the environment really like it and value it right now in, in the moment where they are? Uh, and that's the question. And you really have to understand your environment. And in, in order to co-evolve, you, you really need to be working with customers in your environment as the environment is changing. At a very tactical level, that's going to ring very strongly with project managers who are faced with lean and agile techniques that are very specifically about when trying to figure out what someone wants in the development of software or now expanded to other development Get the customer in the room with you immediately. Get minimally viable products. Make sure you understand what they're really talking about. Don't no. do not do a big marketing campaign, a big survey, wait a year, have this long development, put a product out and see how it goes from there. It's get them involved immediately because you have to understand their needs. You're actually arguing even a step further. Once produced, look for usage. Look for uptake. Look for whether they're getting the value they expected mm. uh, through the use. Um, through the use. Yeah, exactly. You want to observe their behavior as they're using it, not just uh, do a survey and ask them how they liked it, you know, because whatever they say in that survey may not be what they really think, uh, and their their use will determine uh, things more likely. Uh, like, like in a restaurant, restaurants should really be looking at the plates that come back to the kitchen and what wasn't eaten, uh, <laughs> because that that tells you what they didn't like, basically. It's too late to watch what they stop buying. Yeah. And there was your, there was your point on the profits of rearview mirror, right? <laughs> yeah. It's only later when you realize you're not selling one of the entrees. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about this model then. Uh, in your book, you laid out as three big kind of phases that you're saying to become truly great, which you've, you've named as the way to be sustainable, basically, to be able to really be effective in the world to continue your organization. And you, but that's the third part. It starts even earlier. So lay out your model a little bit for us. So phase one. Okay, phase one is uh, be virtuous, which is all about uh, building in the virtues and the values that we just talked about earlier, uh, the attributes to your products, but also to be sure that um, whatever you're talking about in your narrative is actually lived in your organization. Who owns this problem? Is this a leadership? And you're talking about the design of the organization? This is definitely a leadership issue. The C-suite would, would own this, I would okay. think. But it has to go throughout the organization. Um, so that's, day, that's phase one. Let's talk and, a little bit about virtue, though. So when you opened with your book, I thought one of the things you talked about that was interesting, This it's one of those uh, dissonance that you kind of grab is, a very good drug cartel could be a highly effective organization. So we don't need to confuse, as we don't want to confuse effective with efficiency, we also don't want to confuse it with moral goodness necessarily. 
So effective has something about being able to accommodate its market is where you're headed here with this, I think, to well, be truly effective. So, yeah, originally when I started writing the book, uh, the title changed a lot, and, ah, and mostly it was about effectiveness. Uh, but I found out along the way that uh, even drug cartels, of course, could be effective. And so that's why um, I built in this first phase about uh, being being virtuous. And if you think of a circle, you know, and a line across horizontally, yeah. think of the top part as being positive virtue and the lower part being negative. So, you know, you would see people like drug cartels and ISIS and, um, you know, terrorist groups and whatever down at the bottom. But uh, you want to be operating on the top because uh, the environment that you're working in is going to value that and, and not the other thing. So you don't want to start down the long road of becoming, trying to become a sustainable organization and operate from the negative side. Yeah. There's no greatness coming from the negative side. And that's why you shifted from just a discussion of effectiveness to being great, which is exactly. positive effectiveness. It's what you can do with effectiveness. <laughs> effectiveness is the engine of greatness, but you have to build in the, the values to begin with to keep you from falling in a pothole, like Enron, like uh, Volkswagen, like uh, Wells Fargo. You know, so many examples that we uh, see in the news. Um, these are people that let the negative values, um, which is doing things not best for the customer, deceiving, um, you know, so many uh, values you could put in the negative side. Um, when those happen, the environment is going to recognize those and they will um, make you pay for it, basically. Have you found any common virtues among organizations generally or by sector? Is there, are there any you can speak to? I mean, certainly doing what's best for the customer, I think. and Sounds like that's a requirement. Because that's the only way to be sustainable into the future. Yes, but it's it's not a value that's really lived mm. that much in in many organizations. Um, you know, most are still being driven by the profit motive. Yeah, and by or even by shareholder value. What's the problem with that? Well, um, it's again a narrow objective that uh, you tend to try to maximize. But as we know from um, systems theory, um, if, you, if you try to, well, there's two things. It's a complex adaptive system, right, the organization. And so um, when you're going for um, a profit or for shareholder value, um, it tends to um, uh, drive things in a certain direction, and um, it may not be sustainable. Now, when you say complex adaptive system, explain that a little bit to us, and then why is that true that that wouldn't be sustainable? Because people in the may need to see how they – because I'm thinking about project managers. They're working within an environment, but even as they handle their projects and their production uh, of getting something accomplished, they're working within an environment inside the organization. We're not even at the customer interface just yet. And so I'm thinking they exist in this complex adaptive system, so I think we need to explain that a little bit. So what is a complex adaptive system? Uh, okay, examples in nature are like flocks of birds, uh, schools yeah. of fish, ant colonies. Uh, these are systems in which we have multiple agents, yeah. the individual birds or individual fish. Um, they are acting, they're interacting together, and the patterns that we see emerge from below. Basically, they are emergent. Uh, in a complex adaptive system. And even in an ant colony, the, the queen is not in control. Uh, it's just that the uh, ants self-differentiate. Uh, so your argument is within an organization, actually, there's only so much management, top-down, goal-setting, in this context even, that can really happen. <clears throat> this idea that we are going to go here, and it's like, well, maybe not, because it's a complex adaptive system. The, the, the teams, the employees are all shifting all the time in terms of how they're doing their own production, how they're doing their interactions. Yeah, in fact, I've come to realize very recently that the goal-setting process is one of the most destabilizing things oh. in, a, in, a, in an organization. Why so? Well, because it's a complex adaptive system. And just think of it. You know, you bring in a new C-suite yep. with a new objective set and uh, basically, you're betting the farm uh, because you can go down the wrong road and, um, you know, maybe even not come back. Um, <laughs> right. Bad strategic decisions. Yeah. Oh, you're hating on strategic planning here. I'm hearing that too. Okay. <laughs> so basically, in, in my model, which yeah. is uh, the outcome focus model, uh, the goal of every organization is the same, 
that is to be effective within its environment. That's an important key right there. Say that again. That was a really important statement. Because the goal of every organization is the same. Because I don't think people think of themselves that way. Yes, the goal of every organization is the same. I know that's maybe counterintuitive or Mm. even radical, but it's really uh, quite true uh, once you think about it. Because what we've been doing to this point is we've been using workarounds. We didn't have a concept of organizational effectiveness, so we had to use the goal model. We had to set goals. But now if we do have a concept of organizational effectiveness, that means the goal of every organization is the same. And I'm, what I'm saying in my book is that we now do have a, a, a concept of organizational effectiveness, and it is the outcome-focused model, which is in Chapter 7. Let's go to that because that's Phase 2 of this model now, right? We're going to discover our effectiveness is how right. I remember right. that, yes. that, that Phase section two part, is which sets up a number of your chapters. And by the way, Chapter 7 was one of my faves as well. <laughs> so, Well, that's great because it's the most difficult chapter. <laughs> well, it's the good one, though. So tell – okay, so now let's get into that heart of that model. So yeah. we're going to – we it turns out effectiveness is the big shocking radical statement, but we also have to – achieve greatness is really what you're saying. Which So we start with effectiveness in the context of good virtue. Okay. Have virtues, instill them in your culture, instill them in the products and be focused on customers. Now we move to what does it actually mean to be effective? And your, your uh, prescription for people is to discover effectiveness. So we better learn about what that is. So tell us the model now. I keep interrupting you. 30 minutes in, you want to tell me the model, go for it. No, that's right. Um, okay. So discovering effectiveness is all about testing your uh, offerings in the environment. Uh, so if, if I'm going to be a great organization, uh, I've got to offer the environment something. Yeah. Um, and we survive and thrive by interchanging benefits with the environment. Now, there's a whole range of benefits. And if I don't come to that in a minute, remind me about that. We'll go back to that. Yeah. But, uh, I'm thinking it's profit for a second. We know that's not the answer. So keep going. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, we've already said uh, inputs to activities to outputs. That's all within the organization. Yeah. That's all on the supply side. It's all about efficiency, basically. Uh, but if we're going to become effective, we've got to take those uh, offerings, put them out there and see what the, um, what the environment says about them. And that's where effectiveness is expressed. It's about the uptake, adoption, and use of our offerings by the actors in the environment. So if we don't get any uptake, adoption, and use, we're dead in the water. Uh, We've got to rethink our offerings. So what we're saying is at the top, you know, the goal of every organization is the same. But now we come down to the offering level, Mm. and we're going to have a portfolio of offerings. We're going to have, you know, one through 10 or whatever of our offerings. And we want a causal chain or a results chain for each of those offerings so that we can look at the inputs to activities to outputs um, relationship and then test them, test that offering in the environment. So is this the, ex- you, you called it EEOs, expected external outcomes. Is that is that right. the measure that I'm like right. the monitoring? Expe- the expected external outcomes are the behaviors of uptake, adoption, and use. And they become the referent for effectiveness. So, Mm. you know, if I'm looking to see that there's an elephant in the room, uh, I know what an elephant looks like, and that's the referent. So its it's appearance is what I use to judge whether an elephant is present. Mm. So if I'm looking to see if effectiveness is present, I have to look at something in the environment. And what I'm looking for is uptake, adoption, and use give me an of example. my offerings. So it gives us an example. So I buy, I mean, because okay. when I read the book and I've tried to explain it to people, not understanding it perhaps fully, I'm thinking, I, I went down this model. Apple sells an iPhone. They make their, they, they exchange money for the product at the point of sale. And that's usually where we stop measuring. And what I, what I felt you were calling to is, is the way to make this a sustainable organization is beyond that transaction is that when I recognize that people use that for some other purpose, which sets me up to do two things, two major things, more scope or more scale. I can sell them the new iPhones in the future, or I can find out, well, they want to have all these software products associated with their iPhones. Look at this ecosystem I can build because they're using it in this new way. And that builds my customer base and allows me to continue to go into the future. was how I was interpreting the use of a very specific product beyond the transaction. Yeah. Well, the transaction uh, starts the process. Certainly. Starts it. Yeah. But the reason they bought it is really for the apps. What they can do with the phone, they can make calls, but they can also 
use ForeFlight if they're a pilot. Right. And, you know. Do so many things. <laughs> right. So many different apps. Yeah. Uh, and it, it replaces other gadgets that they already had. If they had an iPod, they don't need that anymore because they now have an iPhone that also does that. Uh, if they get podcasts on their laptop, they don't have to do that. Because they can get it on their iPhone now. Which we highly recommend to everyone who listens to podcasts. Absolutely. And everyone who doesn't should be. So tell me your example of a good of a good way of describing specifically how you've seen uptake happen just yeah. beyond the output model. Okay, let me give you another example. Um, I worked on bird flu mm. in Asia uh, back when I was working at the World Bank. And the idea of bird flu is that the flocks of birds uh, – the you know, coming down from the Arctic, down the Chinese coast, down through Vietnam, and they're going down to the southern hemisphere. And the reservoir for bird flu is in the, the wild flocks. Right. And the wild flocks will drop down and mix with the domestic poultry from time to time and, you know, use their water and their feed and everything. And that's how bird flu is transmitted. But now, if you're going to intervene in that, what you need to do is separate the wild flocks from the domestics. And the way you do that is you cage the domestics, basically, so that the wild flocks can't actually interact. interact with them. And if we see, you know, if we, let's say, design a project that does that, and we see that the poultry producers are now caging their, wild, their domestic flocks, and there's money in the project to help them do that, <clears throat> if there's uptake adoption and use of that, in other words, we go out in the field and we see now they're caged. We have the outcome we were looking for. Basically. And that's what you should plan for in, the, in, in advance, the expected external outcome. Yes, because that's what the economic and financial analyses assume to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so what, what we're doing, we're calling outcomes not the end result, but it's the flow across the boundary there between supply and demand. You just said something important. We assumed that in the model. This is a method of actually uncovering. It's a thought process for un uncovering those assumptions because your, your your point is well taken that we made the hand pumps. We made the, the latrines. We made the cages. We got them out in the field. It, the assumption was, and therefore people are using them. And you're saying it's actually validating that assumption and check that assumption. Check that outcome that's expected. Right. We're doing financial analyses and economic analyses with certain assumptions. But we don't really know whether that's going to happen unless we follow up um, later as it's implemented. And, you know. So let's talk about that in a commercial sector. I can see that in the non-governmental organizations, the, the doing goods area, and in governmental organizations that are mission focused in terms of kind of at any cost providing a service. But talk about it in the context of those that are profit making entities. How would, what's an example where people would need to look beyond you, you refer to it as it's outside they're just outside of your organization's boundaries those are those external instrument by external i assume right mm -hmm. expected mm -hmm. outcomes so where would you see that where have you seen that where have you seen that working well where people are focused on that well you can see it anywhere you know let's mm. say um make it real a car rental company okay uh which i dealt with not long ago <laughs> <laughs> Like this morning, right? Not, <laughs> not this morning, but uh, <laughs> right. a, few, a few weeks ago. So, you know, there's an interface between the car rental company and the customer. And mm -hmm. it's usually where they come in and pick up the car. Yeah. You can have statistics on how, how many customers are coming and evaluate those on even a daily basis or a monthly basis or a quarterly basis and look at those trends over time. Mm -hmm. And those become indicators of how well how effective your particular offering is. Your offering is the car that you're renting. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, you're competing among other rental agencies. There are a number of places I could go to rent a car. Um, and it's really not just the rental of the car that's important, but it's everything that surrounds it. That's the customer's journey, basically, and how I'm treated when I come to that, you know, desk where I'm picking up the car. There's a lot of car companies now that are just saying, you know, if you're already in their system, you just go to the car and, right. and drive it off because it, you're in the system and, you know, you're given a code or something um, to pick it up and, and you can just go. Well, there was a shift a few years ago that sounds like this, as I remember in, in management reading, and I won't remember who started this, but this idea about customer delight. We have to move past 
providing what they said they wanted. It's about the experience. I think it probably came out of a lot of the uh, internet economy, but it's about customer delight and it's about the experience. And the delight comes from them having various utility beyond, I want to use this product. It's the ways they think about the product. That sounds similar to what you're talking about here. Customer delight, customer certainly. Delight. I, I like customer delight as a, as a way to think about it. But, you know, I think you have to go beyond that to think not just about your customer, mm-hmm. but your non-customer as well. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, if you're serving your environment, your employees need to be empowered to ask every day, how can I better serve my environment? Um, so, you really, you don't need the C-suite to bring down, to cascade down all these goals. Because the goal of every organization is the same. It's to be effective. And that means you don't need a C-suite to set all of these goals. What you what happens is you cascade down the power to set the goals to the teams that are working on individual, you know, offerings to the environment. Um, and then they are asking themselves and their colleagues, how can we better serve the environment today? And they're empowered to actually take some actions to do that. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that because it really is you were you were creating a, a sensing organization out of a, a, from everyone who has an interface with the external environment, or probably internally as well, because they have internal customers. That's right. Because ones. if you're going to innovate, and innovation is probably the most thing that's in short supply these days in organizations, and I think the reason is. Uh, they're kind of overburdened by all of these indicators that are cascaded down from the top. Uh, get rid of all of that. In fact, uh, um, you know, W. Edwards Deming told us long ago that uh, that doesn't really work. That, that just incentivizes custom, uh, employees to game the system, yeah. and it uh, you know, lessens the effectiveness of the organization. Man, every measurement system is immediately gamed, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. And you don't need it either. Uh, because the way to get innovation is to draw on the uh, intrinsic uh, view of, of employees about how they're what they're motivated by. Uh, there's there's lots of desire internally in employees to to do a good job if you give them the freedom to do it. Mm. Um, so this is the way that we're thinking in this model is that uh, the power goes out to the periphery. They ask every day how best to serve our environment. Um, Morningstar Tomato Company is actually doing these kinds of things. There, there's a lot of organizations that are actually doing some of these things now. Um, they, they have almost no management from the top. Uh, they have self-organizing uh, teams that uh, they get the job done. Now, one of the interesting things that I have faced in a lot of the organizations that I work in, in the environment I'm in, is to respond to our environment, often to be effective for the clients that I have, means that I cannot have self-organizing teams. That okay. Because my client doesn't want a self-organizing team. They want a specific team designed for them, right, to do the goals that they have set. Okay. Um, so the service economy is a little bit different in that sense to me. In that, And I really, it really goes back to your model for a second. You talked about being able to be responding to the requirements of your environment. What happens when the environment, I won't say evil, but let's say when the, in, in terms of non-virtuous, but what happens when the environment is asking for some of the things that you define as not particularly helpful, right? That they're counting through a Taylorism type of model or they're looking for efficiency. They've set goals and here we are to help serve them meet their goals that they've defined which means often that they have very specific requirements, both in terms of how uh, how service is provided, what service is provided, and even who provides the service or what type of people provide the service, which is a real constraint against the model of um, fully empowered, freewheeling, complex, adaptive system. Perhaps, what do we do when our external environment is operating in that less than effective uh, methodology? You know, I said uh, the goal of every organization is the same, to be effective in its environment. But you have the choice of where you want to play in the environment. So exit. You can you can select <laughs> your customers, basically. Um, you don't have to uh, deal with customers that are the most problematic. Yeah. You can, you know, reposition yourself to a little bit different part of the market. And, you know, you have to make those choices. Yeah. Voice, loyalty, or exit. That was the paradigm. Yep. And yep. So- 
<laughs> if you're not in a situation to raise your voice, you either got to just play along or get out of that customer's market or get out of where that, from that customer. So tell me a little bit more in that second section about discovering effectiveness. Um, you're, you've, you've described that we're really looking at that just beyond our boundaries, our own organizational boundaries, what the expected outcomes are. And I assume we have to measure that. We have to say that didn't work. That did work. So in a certain sense, we're goal setting around the EEOs, the, around the external effective uh, outcomes. We're setting outcome level goals for okay. our um, offerings. And to we have to be able to measure that, though. That's where I think the rub sometimes comes in. Um, not necessarily. Okay. Um, because you can select uh, which behaviors you want to measure. Okay. Um, and, and this is part of the, you know, it's not a science, perhaps, but it's... Um, I've never seen a case where you couldn't find a behavior that was representative of uh, the uptake, adoption, and use that you were looking for. Strikes me that the people that might know that best are, in fact, many of the people who have the customer engagement and not top-down. I mean, that feeds that part of your model, I Absolutely, think. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, let them set their own um, indicators, but they have to be meaningful, certainly, and, and have to be verifiable uh, by an independent source. Ah, so you've introduced something new there. So we do need measures of some sort, but they need to be meaningful and verifiable independently. So independent, so as if a person could check on it. Yes. Right. What about meaningful? What do you mean by that? Well, meaningful in that it has to be logical in the causal chain okay. or in the results chain. You don't want something that doesn't mean anything in that causal chain. From the inputs to the production, to the outputs. Right, right. So what else do you have in that in that chapter seven? Actually, you have about four chapters, I think, in that section in there uh, that you wanted to speak to. Because I think we've talked about the results chain and the expected outcomes uh, and the movement away from efficiencyism in there to effectiveness. Well, okay, let me uh, mention one thing. If you think of a video game yeah. and you're doing, let's say, one of these race car games where... Uh, you see the road turning to the right, and you turn the wheel to the right, and the screen tells you immediately that you're turning to the right. Yep. Now, the advantage of the outcome focus model and the effectiveness part here that we're talking about is that it gives you immediate feedback. Yeah. Uh, we haven't had that before in uh, management. Uh, if you're managing against profit, that's not immediate feedback. That's looking in the rearview mirror. Yep. If you're managing against shareholder value, that's like looking in the rearview mirror, going up and down the roller coaster, right. really. You know, but this way of doing it, where you've uh, defined your causal chains for each of your offerings, and you're looking at the demand side response, you know, you can do that daily, you can do it weekly, you can do it monthly, whatever is meaningful. And many organizations, many IT-based companies are now doing split tests on the web to see how their customers on the web, you know, buy things based on the particular attributes or uh, web pages that they're being shown. Oh, the A-B testing. A-B testing. I, and I'm also hearing your systems engineering coming out here. You're talking about sample rate, <laughs> you know, determining how fast it's reasonable or interesting to check on these uh, outcomes. I have found sometimes they're hard to measure, and, and I don't mean just because defining the measure, but getting the customer interaction or getting the ability to see it. We're back to a, 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 another discussion people have around what makes a good measure. And one of the clear ones is, is you can repeat it and you actually have access to it. Like you can sometimes create one, but it's hard to have that repeated and, and obvious. Um, so I think one of the things is to find good EEOs, expected, out, uh, expected outcomes, external outcomes. Well, it may be that you can. They may be do. difficult to measure if you're external to the firm. Yeah. But if you're internal to the firm, it's very likely they they have those measures and, yeah. and they have that data. It may be you know proprietary data, but if you're internal to the firm and you're trying to manage your own firm, uh, you should have it. So I'm a project manager. I'm managing a software de development for a client. It's external. The client has hired this company to build a piece of software for them or modify software. There's a pro there's different development processes for that and different management processes, but the organization has one. What is the project manager to be thinking about? This is a person who can uh, control some resources, can allocate when things happen, put some you know scope, cost, and schedule, tends to have been trained in tools around efficiencyism. We put this much effort in, did we move this far in the project? Have we hit the milestones of the project that will get us to an end? 
They're trying to use customer feedback as they move along. What do they need to be thinking about in terms of your model? If they're in a good organization, they've been empowered, a virtuous organization, what do they need to be thinking about? How do we know we're seeing them operate in an effective manner? So they're not directly exposed to the market, right? They're exposed to the client. They are building this for a client. But the client is the one that's going to sell it to the market, right? Oh, no, they'll use it internally. I'm building software for ah. a bank. Okay. I'm building software for a company that's building jet engines or weapon systems. But they need software to help manage uh, the quality of something or whatever. So I'm now providing a software product to them for them to be able to do something. The client is going to use this. They've hired us to do it. Yeah. Well, then you need to be working with the business case group, you know, right. uh, to see what they really want and how they're going to use it and co-evolve it with them, basically. Right. So you're liking the lean and agile. I'm liking the lean and yeah. the agile, sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, There's a lot of co-development in that sense or co coexisting during the development phase. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of questions do people need to be asking? What would be an expected outcome of, of something like that, if you could imagine one? Well, you know, a lot of software projects fail uh, when, when it comes to the interaction between the software and the people. Mm. Um, and so the software is fairly efficient, but when it starts to be used by the people that have to then take it on to some other next phase, Classic problem. Um, you know, you've, uh, you've entered into another realm of efficiencyism. You know, you've sub-optimized. Yeah. You, you've made efficient one part of the process, but you haven't thought about the whole process. Um, and so, um, like um, when the typewriter first came out, and if you didn't know how to type and you were an author, uh, you would have to learn to type before you could actually uh, benefit from that efficiency. So there's many things like that that result in sub-optimization. Right. So you talk about the last part, about actually becoming great then. So what are those next steps that people, what, what do we need to focus on in that part? Yeah, so basically what we're saying is that uh, positive organizational effectiveness is the engine of greatness. So positive organizational effectiveness this is what you've described as virtue, virtuous effectiveness. Yeah, so this is... Above that. This circle. is a method of management <laughs> compared to management by uh, objectives. Okay. okay. So this replaces management by objectives with management by positive organizational effectiveness. Which you describe as? Which I describe as being virtuous, discovering effectiveness, and then becoming truly great. So we've talked about virtuousness, we've talked about effectiveness. Becoming great is basically moving from outcomes to impacts. Huh. So uh, if an outcome is a flow, an impact is filling the reservoir, you know. So as long as those behaviors, those uptake, adoption, use behaviors keep going for five years, uh, we're going to become great. As long as there's the uptake, adoption, and use that we're expecting, uh, we can outcompete and, and fill our niche, basically. So as long as we're getting that uptake and, um, you know, we're looking at the environment we're serving it, and we're innovating along the way, within five years, we're expecting to become the main, the main guy in that niche, basically. So when I read your book, and I, I'm going to use the model you said a second ago, a few minutes ago, there was a difference between outcomes and impact, which I really, really like. The outcomes is almost the, the, the use and the adoption. They're doing something with this, uh, for which the stakeholder brings in various utility. They want GM, uh, GMOs or something, right? Uh, or, or not. And they have some utility beyond the particular product or service, perhaps. They okay, let's virtual. stop right there and let's talk about the types yeah. of benefits. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay. Because uh, I have to respond to those. Yeah. So what is it that motivates the sale or the, you know, the uptake, adoption, and use? So I have a hierarchy of benefits mm. um, model in, in the book. And at the lowest level is the financial and economic. Yeah. That's where, let's say, I go in and I want to buy a, lot, a riding lawnmower at the big box store. Yeah. Um, and I give them my credit card. So that's a financial flow to the, the big box store. And part of that makes its way back to the manufacturer of the lawnmower. Um, but now I get the economic benefits in exchange. And that means that I can use the lawnmower over several years to mow my lawn. 
which replaces the, the thing that I would have to do to hire somebody. You know, I would, let's say, spend $30 a week for nine months a year and $1,000 plus a year to mow my lawn. Uh, but if I buy a lawnmower, a riding lawnmower for $1,500, you know, I can get a payback in a year and a half. Right. And then I keep using it after that, and it's free, although I've got to pay for gas. But Standard anyway, financial model. Yeah, it's a, a standard uh, transactional model, okay? But now, we also have social and psychological benefits from this activity because as I'm mowing my lawn, I'm seen as a productive member of the community and I can say hi to my neighbors and, you know, there's some social benefits there. And I also may feel better about myself, you know, because I'm out there doing this activity. So you call that the second layer? That's, social. that's the second layer, social and psychological. And then above that, um, um, spiritual and environmental, which means um, I'm improving my community. Uh, I'm serving the greater good, you know. And um, in, in some other activities, there may be some spiritual benefits as well. Uh, a lot of organizations uh, do, do appeal to the spiritual side of things, and um, that becomes attractive. We could think of churches or a lot of other nonprofits, you know, where these kinds of benefits are in play and they motivate some exchanges with the organization. Uh, so there's a variety of, of benefits. Some of them are non-tangible and those need to go into your calculation about how you want to position your offerings. That's part of your value chain. Absolutely. And part of what you need to measure is an expected outcome. Identify that and, and uncover it and then measure if it's really happening. Not only if it's really happening, is that really motivating? Really motivating. So this is interesting. So the implication there would be that a lawn mowing, a lawnmower production company, producer, manufacturer, would say more than uh, for this price you get a number of years and the wear and tear is this. It would it would pitch possibly in their commercials the happy person talking to their neighbor, their commitment to environmentalism, where where you can control how you mow your grass better. Well, the brochures, you know, for the lawnmower companies typically uh, depict uh, a happy guy, uh, you know, navigating his way through the flower beds and saying hi to his neighbors. Enjoying so so they already understand this. Yeah, so they're doing that. No, that was your point, though, <laughs> yeah. right? They have adapted to their actual environment. They're looking for being effective. Maybe not consciously, but it, it has worked its way. There in. was a yeah. product way to do that. Now, yeah. so it's continuing on then. So my, my customers have multiple benefits. I need to be thinking ahead, uncovering assumptions to connect to them with my products and services. I need to enable all teams to do that. All, all members that are in, interfacing need to be thinking that way. How can I serve this broader environment question uh, moving forward? And you talk, go ahead. Yeah. And so you want to have basically watchtowers on the environment. Aha. What's that? Not... Not uh, literally watchtowers, yeah. but figuratively. Uh, we want to be looking out at the environment for incipient behaviors that either represent a new opportunity yeah. to serve. Uh, like, let's say, um, some guy buys a, a truck off the, the dealer's lot, but in, then he customizes it in certain ways that then you know the car club also starts doing as well. Uh, so the manufacturer, if they were uh, aware of this trend, could build a new um, option into their product line that would do that for them and make it more widely available. The key would be to get out and see that behavior, which happens beyond the salesperson's interaction on the lot. Absolutely. So you have to invest in that side. Yep. So, again, continuing on your model, we have the uptake and use and out uh, to... to, to uh, the outputs have uptake and outcomes, but then you took a step farther, which is impact. So uh, I wanted to make sure I plunged through that. When you talked about the avian flu, uh, my my production model is I'm a, I'm an organization, perhaps a non-governmental organization, and I produce the cages because I see how the flu actually happens. There's a mechanism for this problem. We see where the intervention, we believe there's an intervention. It's about keeping the flock separate. Cages solve that, let's just say. I produce cages. So I can tell all the people that donated money to me, last year we produced 130,000 cages and provided them to the many people of Southeast Asia. And so that might be a good check mark. And you're like, well, okay, so that's output. We're going to measure efficiencyism. Now we want to go out and measure, did anyone actually use the cages? And are they being used for the purposes of the intervention? Purposes and intended. And what were they using? Yeah. And purpose as intended. Did we get what we expected? Or is there something new? What should we sense? 
But you went to impact. So to me, if I'm guessing right, if I'm understanding you, that's the next thing, which is, and the next year we saw a drop in flu. Yeah, uh, cases or, of flu. or we have not seen recurrence of, or we haven't of seen the, the flu. recurrence or yeah. whatever. Right, yeah. it's the step beyond even the because years. now the wild flocks are separated from the domestic flocks right. and they cannot interact. Uh, there may still be some stragglers out there that have not adopted, you know, the program. But and that's where so many aid pro- pro- projects have problems. Is that it's hard to say what we're doing, what is its actual impact on the health of children in this environment. Right? It gets to be a very difficult calculus, and that's one that they always talk about. It's hard to measure. You know, I'm here to help do poverty alleviation, but it's hard to measure did I alleviate any poverty in the end. Well, there's so, Because there's so many reasons for these problems. Yeah, this is another problem, is that if you set the objective too high, if you set the uh-huh. objective at the impact level to begin with for your program, then... It's so diffuse and so difficult to measure. You've got to bring it down to the outcome level and start talking about the offerings that are actually going to bring this about in the longer term. So I need to set my measures at the outcome level, but to be truly great, we have to go to the impact level. So how do we see that leap? You say it takes five years, but what is it? We how how do we how do we see that, and how can we or do we plan for that? Sure, you can plan for it. Okay. Um, it's just that the immediate feedback comes at the outcome level where we can see that uptake adoption and use. But if that continues for the future and it's it's you know it's a flow and it's it's creating this reservoir of, of impact more wide more widely in the economy, countrywide, let's say, then we can document and, and, and show that. So this is interesting because I think so many of us measure at the output level. Yeah. And then this is really pushing beyond that to the outcome and then ultimately to the impact. And that becomes part of what people talk about, the why. Why Why am I in this company? Why am I in this organization? Why do I work in this government organization? Why do I work in this association? Why do I work in this nonprofit? That, that mission-oriented why. Because presumably, the mission must be about those impacts. I would guess that's what it has to be about. Well, in a truly great organization, they're attempting to get those impacts with purpose. Yeah, purpose is just another word for goal, but it's imbued with a little bit higher. Has a sense of meaning, though. Um, most most places would say purpose is goal, mm. um, but it's a specific kind of goal that's more spiritual in and in some respects. But I would still argue that your goal setting again, you're still using the goal model, and it's hard to know whether you've set the right goal. I still argue that the goal of every organization is the same. That is to be effective in your environment. Uh, you can still achieve a spiritual purpose, but that's through your offerings, your specific offerings mm. that that uh, exchange benefits at the spiritual level. So should we measure the impact at all then? Yes. Or has that pushed us too far to try that? Well, once I get past measuring, the Im- level. measuring impact is expensive. Okay. Yeah. I would argue we really don't need that expense in most cases as long as we're measuring outcomes. And so you can economize greatly by just measuring outcomes and then maybe occasionally, once every decade, uh, measure impact if you're in the government sector. Right, particularly those are going to be large scale typically. Yeah. Okay, but we can see that ultimate value chain goes all the way through that or the logic chain goes all the way through uh, to impact. Excellent. And that's about it for the interview. Join us again next time when we'll... Here again, stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. In the meantime, you can follow all of our podcast episodes at our website, ageofoe.com. So long for now.